is that back in 1893, someone misread the order for 60 feet 0 inches to be 60 feet 6 inches. But that's nothing compared to Eve's mistake in the garden when she believed Satan's lie. Hi, and welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is ready to wrap up this series of lessons about a controversial topic, women in worship. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said that one reason God doesn't intend women to have leadership roles in the church is the order of creation. God made Eve from Adam to be a help to him, not to be his leader. But what does the fall have to do with women teaching men? Here's Pastor Steve with the answer from 1 Timothy 2.14. He gives a second reason in chapter 2, verse 14. And this is very interesting, and I think very misunderstood. This passage will make you think a little bit. Verse 14, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Paul's referring once again to Genesis and the record of the fall of man. So let's look again at Genesis, but now let's look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now, we went over the order of creation, but now sin is about to enter the world, and this is how it came about. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, what Satan purposely left out was that God had said that they could eat freely of any other tree. Back to chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. I mean, God is saying, I'm good to you. I've given you bountiful provision. But, verse 17 says, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. But the serpent left that out conveniently. All he hit upon was the negative factor. Is God holding something back from you? Is he doing that? He he failed purposely to mention that God had said they could eat of anything they wanted but one thing. So immediately Satan cast negative doubts into Eve's mind. He diverted her attention away from God's bountiful provisions to a negative prohibition. He wanted her to begin to resent God's authority over her, which is the trick he does today, and we fall for it. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the, from the fruit... Now, she really, she explained it to him. She said, Well, God did say we could, we could eat from the tree of the, the garden, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, now first he casts a negative doubt in her mind, and now he just lies to her. He says, you surely shall not die. And the Bible calls Satan the father of lies, and this is the, the first lie to mankind. You surely shall not die. Die, For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he lies to her. First he cast doubts on God's goodness. Now he lies about God's goodness. And in essence, Satan is saying this. God really doesn't care about you. He doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of that tree because he doesn't want you to be as smart as him. 
He knows that when you eat that, he'll have competition, and he doesn't want that. And Eve fell for this lie, hook, line, and sinker. Verse 6 says this, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. That's where our problems begin. She, she fell for it. And you know, people fall for it, even today. This is a lie that, that Satan propagates today. It's, it's the same old lie. God doesn't really have your best interests at heart, does he? And I mean, have you ever been tempted like that? Go ahead and do it. I mean, if God really loved you and cared about you, he wouldn't restrict you. God wouldn't put a limit on you. I mean, don't, doesn't God want you to be happy? Don't you want to be happy? Isn't really that's what life is all about? If God really cares about you, he'll let you do what you want. I mean, if it feels good, go ahead and do it. And that's exactly what happened with Eve. Now, the Bible says she was deceived. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 says, And Eve was quite deceived. You know, this word quite deceived is not... Uh, that's why the translators put quite in there. She was completely deceived. She was tricked. She was fooled. It means she was thoroughly deceived. She fell for it. In fact, when God questions her about it, in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She was telling the truth. I was deceived. In 2 Corinthians eleven three, Paul writes, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So, throughout the Bible, it's mentioned that Eve was deceived. She was not only deceived, she was thoroughly deceived. She was tricked. Was she ever gullible? But according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. Adam was not tricked. Adam ate with his eyes open. Adam knew exactly what was going on. But he chose to follow Eve, and he sinned in the fall of mankind. Back to 1 Timothy 2. What is Paul's point? And, and that's really what we're dealing with. Paul's thinking reverts back to Genesis. But what's the point he's making when he says, For it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Now, some have said that Paul's point is that women shouldn't teach men because they are more easily deceived and led astray than men. They are, they are subject to error. And they have tried to support their conclusion by listing the number of women who have uh, been founders of cults. And you can list a number of women, but let me, let me answer that by saying you can also list a number of men who have been founders of cults. And you can go throughout the, the Bible and find that there were more male false teachers than women false teachers. And my response to those who conclude that that's what Paul means, that women are just more gullible than men, so they should, just shouldn't teach men, then why, if that's true, then why do we say they can teach women? And why do we say they can teach children? Do we not care about women being protected and children being protected from being led astray? No, that's not Paul's point. It isn't that women are more gullible than men. It isn't that if a woman gets up here and teaches, she is more likely to lead you into error than, than someone else. I was going to say than I am, but you know that I don't lead you into error, right? You're not laughing at that. Okay. No, that's not the point that, that men 
are sharper biblically than women? What is his point then? His point is this. Women have been designed by God to follow the leadership of men. They have not been designed to lead men. They have been designed to follow. And back in Genesis 3, that order was reversed. Eve took the lead. And Adam abdicated his authority. And the result was the entrance of sin into the world. In other words, when there was that reversal of of roles, look what happened. Eve took the the lead and Adam in essence said, well, okay, Eve, I'll do whatever you say. And he just followed her and everything got corrupt from that point on. God created Adam to, to lead and Eve to follow him. But when she got out from under Adam's protection and tried to operate independently from Adam, from her strength, from her savior, from her protector, from her headship, she was thoroughly deceived. God designed women to be under the head of a man, not lead them. And when she did lead, she ventured out from under the umbrella of Adam's protection, and she was vulnerable to the attacks of Satan, and therefore she was quite deceived. Had she stayed under her husband's protection, things might have been different. Women who are not under the divine umbrella of protection that God has provided are more easily deceived. Same is true of men too. God has designed leadership in the church of of elders over the flock and so forth. But the point is, when you venture out from under the God-given headship and protection that he's provided, you are vulnerable and open to the attack of the enemy. It's obvious when you move away from the armor God has given you. And see, that truth just confirms verse 13. For it was Adam who was created and then Eve. Adam was the head and he was to lead and not Eve. But when they reversed that, she was deceived. When they went against the divine order, then it led to chaos and problems. So what Paul is saying to all Christian women by way of application is that none of the daughters of Eve ought to reverse the divine order of creation by ruling and teaching and leading men when the church gathers for worship. That's his point. When a woman did lead, the result was the entrance of sin into the world. Godly women in the church aren't to assume positions of authority for which they were never equipped to handle. And men aren't to be in submission to the headship of a woman. This reverses the divinely ordered plan of God for the sexes and it will result in sin. The fall did and it will result, result somewhere down the line in sin. And, and I just want to reiterate this again. Men are designed to protect. They are designed to be the saviors in their, uh, not only their family but also in the church. Men are equipped to protect and lead women. Women are equipped to be under the protection and leadership of men. This is God's merciful way of doing it. This is God's way of protection. This is a privilege to be under authority, not a punishment. To step out from under that authority and that protection is to be exposed to the enemy's deceitfulness. Just one, one passage to, to uh, back that up. In 1 Corinthians 14, which we looked at some weeks ago, uh, Paul deals with silence in the church there again concerning women who were making outbursts and, and apparently asking questions which they just didn't necessarily want to get answered but to, to hear themselves. In verse 35 of chapter 14, he says this, If they desire to learn anything, implication is they probably don't desire to learn, they just want to be heard, but if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at 
home. In other words, that women, if they really are interested in learning the truth, then come under the authority that God has given you. The problem here was that the women were not under the authority of the leadership, and we went back into the background of this in, in previous weeks. But if they really are interested, then go under the divine protection that God has given you, and that for a married woman would be her husband. So when we think of the fall of, of man, it isn't simply that Adam disobeyed God. It's not just that, but that Eve took the lead and Adam followed her leadership. Do you realize what a horrible stigma that is upon women if God left it like that? Do you realize if, if all we thought of when we thought of women and understood this was that, oh, we're in this trouble because of a woman. What a horrible stigma for women to, to bear. A woman was the first human to sin, and, and while the race fell with Adam, Romans 5, in Adam we died, the stigma would be that guess who led Adam into that? And that was a woman. She led the race into sin. But God doesn't want us to think of that. God doesn't want that stigma upon women. And so Paul uh, is inspired to write one last verse that will deal with this. Paul doesn't want his readers to have a distorted view of women, and I don't want you either to have that, so we must deal with verse 15. And this is what Paul says in verse 15. He says, But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This is the third evidence of a godly woman. Third evidence of a godly woman. You know what that is? It's by her accomplishment. By her accomplishment. Godly women evidence that godliness by their appearance, first of all. Secondly, by their activity. And thirdly, by their accomplishment. What can a woman accomplish that a man can't? And that is to bear children. Verse 15, most commentators would agree, is the hardest verse in this whole letter to interpret. But rest assured, that doesn't mean we can't interpret it and can't interpret it properly. There are four basic views, and I want to cover them uh, because that's important in a verse like this. I want to cover the four basic views of what this verse means. Uh, not an easy verse to, to uh, think through and not an easy verse to come up with at first glance. The first view is this. Some believe that it is a promise that women will physically, who physically survive or will physically survive the pain of childbearing. In other words, physical deliverance in childbearing is God's reward for a godly life. The problem with that is that a lot of godly women have not survived childbirth. Okay? So we don't, we don't believe that. I mean, that just experience shows that to be not true. Godly women have died giving birth to children. Secondly, the, there's a view that a woman who dies in giving birth will be saved spiritually, that her soul will be saved. If she dies while giving birth, her soul will be saved. Or some take it this way, spiritual salvation for women uh, comes through giving birth to children. They're saved through giving birth to children. Well, the problem with that is we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by childbearing. And secondly, the end of this verse refutes this position because it says she shall continue, if she shall continue, in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. You don't continue if you die. Okay? So we dismiss that too. The third argument is a very popular one. In fact, I would say most of the commentaries that I have take this view. And this view is this. Spiritual salvation comes through the incarnation 
of Christ. In other words, Eve was saved through the birth of Christ. And as you look at verse 15, they would say, but uh, Eve or women shall be saved through the bearing of the child or the child bearing. In other words, they say it's a definite article. And if you have a definite article, it means that it is the special childbirth, the birth of Christ. And so they would say Eve and ultimately all women are saved by the birth of Christ. If this is what Paul meant to say, and I suppose it's a possibility, my opinion on this is that it is the most obscure way of saying it. And Paul really doesn't, especially in this passage, is very forthright and direct. He is not dealing with obscurity. There are some other problems. We're not saved by the incarnation of Christ. We're saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. And not only that, it also says that it speaks of the future. She shall be saved. Um, We can't be dealing with Eve now. Eve died years and years ago. This is speaking of, of she shall in the future be saved. So what is the proper view? I think all of these... Uh, views have real problems, even that last one, even, even though it is popular. The view which I believe to be accurate, to be in context, and not to be forcing the issue is the view that women are saved, not in the spiritual sense of salvation, but the word saved here means delivered. Saved doesn't always mean your soul is saved. The Bible uses saved in other ways. Uh, for instance, in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul is going to deal with being, being delivered from false teaching. So saved doesn't always mean that you're saved in the sense of born again. It can mean you are delivered. And I think this is what he means. That women are delivered from bearing the stigma of being the one who led in the transgression of the race. She's delivered by childbearing. In other words, she is delivered from being thought of as a second-class Christian citizen because she led in sin. She is delivered. How is she delivered? By having her accomplish something no man could ever accomplish, and that is by bearing children and raising them for the Lord. Let me explain. It's true that women, or the woman, led in, in the sin issue, but she can also accomplish the great feat of leading in providing godly children. She led the race into sin, but she also leads the race back to the Lord because she has the great privilege of, of bearing children who she can raise for the Lord and turn around and offer them to the Lord. That's why verse 15 is, is qualified by saying this, if they, meaning the women, continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint, She once brought forth a curse, but now she brings forth a blessing. And what is that blessing? It is children, which she is to pour her life into through motherhood and investing her life in those children. And she can have the greatest impact on a little life. A mother in those formative years has the greatest impact on a child than anyone else. And she therefore now has the great, great accomplishment of turning around and offering those children to the Lord and raising a godly seed, the next generation. She took the race into sin, but she can now give back to the human race godly children. This is the accomplishment of godly women. And they have to be godly to accomplish. That's why he says, if she continues in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint, if she continues in godliness. Now this doesn't, mean that if you're a woman and you're not married, you're not godly. That's, that's not the point. It is not God's plan for everyone to be married, 
1 Corinthians 7 deals with the gift of celibacy, but it is God's general plan for mankind, obviously. But it is not his specific will and plan for every individual. This is just a broad general statement, so you don't have to feel left out if you're a woman and not married, and not, or one who's married and doesn't have children. God has delivered women from the loss of dignity by giving her the opportunity to lead the race back to godliness. She doesn't lead by teaching in the church, but she leads by training the what? Future leaders and their wives. See, that's the great accomplishment of a godly woman. Motherhood is the the real thrust of a godly woman's role in the church. Genesis 3.16 speaks of the pain in childbearing. And every time a woman goes into labor and gives birth to a child, it reminds her that women led the race into sin. But the result of bringing forth that child is also a reminder that God has delivered her from the stigma of being the one who led into sin. And she now accomplishes a godly deed by giving to the church the next generation of godly people. Isn't that precious? That's the accomplishment of godly women. Not to lead in the church but to lead in those who will make up the church in the future. A woman's fulfillment isn't through her authority when the church gathers, but through her influence on her children, who will be the next generation. You see, godly women just aren't designed by God to be pastors and and preachers in the church. Godly women are to pour their lives into those young lives. And you see, here's the whole beauty of it. God wants, if you take 1 Timothy chapter 2, you see God wants men who lead in the church who are godly. Not with, they lift up holy hands, not with wrath and with dissension. He wants godly male leadership. Secondly, he wants godly women. Not women who dress inappropriately. Not women who lead men in the church, but women who are godly and submissive to the word of God. And when you put that together, you know what's going to happen? You're going to eventually have a godly church from the children on up because the woman is going to pour her life into those children. So all around, as you take 1 Timothy chapter 2, the message of of God to this church is get back to godliness. Get back to the proper conduct of men and women in the church, and the whole church will benefit. If you get off of this, you won't have godly male leadership, you won't have godly females in the church, and you won't have the next generation being godly. Obviously, this wasn't happening at Ephesus. If it was, Paul wouldn't have had to write this. But let's make sure it always happens at Lakeside. Godly women. And God has given this church wonderful godly women. women. Let's, let's just pray and, and ask the Lord that this would continue as the word of God goes forth. Well, let's, let's pray. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for godly women, especially for my wife. And I pray that you would help each of your followers to thrive and rejoice in the place and with the responsibilities that you have ordained for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff has just concluded this series of messages on women in worship. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Learn more about Verse by Verse at versebyverseradio.org. To contact us, call 727 727- Two three nine zero three zero six, or email contact at versebyverseradio.org. Let me take a moment to remind our visually impaired listeners about a free offer. If you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and would like a free audio Bible for that player, 
Call 800-838-5924 or visit www.blindbibles.com. That's 800-838-5924 or blindbibles.com. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. This has been a challenging study as we've considered what God has to say about the hotly debated subject of women in worship. In our next broadcast, Pastor Steve will introduce another series of lessons. Will it be as controversial as women in worship? We'll have to wait and see, but I am confident that it will be spiritually profitable. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. Deuteronomy 24.6 talks about not taking someone's millstones as collateral for a debt. Millstones were what families would use to grind grain. There were two millstones, a bottom one and a top one, and the one on top was usually easier to move and sometimes used as collateral for debt. But taking a person's millstones meant that you were not only taking away a part of the person's